I'm looking forward to that prayer meeting uh, in a couple weeks. We're going on vacation this week, and then the week after, we're going to have a, a prayer night, and uh, and we'll see what the Lord would do. But today, we're going to be again in um, Acts chapter 7, in Stephen's message. Um, we saw last time uh, about listening, being quiet. Stephen was had some false accusations brought against him. Stephen was one of the deacons. And God had raised him up to minister to the people, and uh, he had a good reputation. And the religious people, again, got in the way and didn't like what was going on and didn't like what the Lord was doing and brought him before the court and just had plenty of false things to say about him. But the high priest opened up that door, if we remember, for him to share the gospel. And Stephen gives us 52 or 53-something verses of uh, the Old Testament and expounding the gospel through it. But last week we looked at the promise to Abraham that God would give him, uh, his descendants really, a great nation. That It said that Abraham didn't have a place to to really put his feet to claim to, but that his descendants would have the entire land. And that Abraham's inheritance was greater, that he was a father of this great nation that eventually the Messiah would come to. But this time Stephen transitions now to Moses. And the message titled today is Time of the Promise. Time of the Promise. Um, And really, this promise that Abraham uh, had been given by God is now fulfilled, or about to be fulfilled, in the days of Moses. Uh, That Moses would be sort of the man God uses to bring about this promise to being. Well, Moses himself, as we see, uh, never got to the promised land until uh, perhaps the transfiguration. Uh, God has a sense of humor about that, but uh, uh, we see that uh, the promise is fulfilled. And we're going to look at, and maybe consider today, waiting for God to fulfill his word waiting for God to fulfill his word. You know, a lot of times God will give us um, a word and sometimes we think it's going to happen right away. Sometimes it does, but sometimes it takes a little bit longer. Sometimes it takes a lot longer than we might imagine. And we're going to look at a little bit of that today. But to start again, we're doing another English lesson, probably because I need to learn English. But what does it mean to wait? What does it mean to wait? Uh, These are all probably, again, things that I think we know, but perhaps we gloss over and don't think about it sometimes. But the dictionary says uh, to stay uh, where one is or delay action until a particular time or until something else happens, uh, to hold on, to hold back, to bide one's time, uh, to sit tight or hold your horses. I remember my mom telling me as a kid a lot of times, hold your horses, (laughs) calm down. Um, But it also can mean to remain in readiness for some purpose. Uh, to be left until a later time, perhaps postponed. Uh, but it can also mean, in a sort of the, the flip side of that, to use to indicate that one is eagerly impatient to do something or for something. You know, you might say, I can't wait for tomorrow. I can't wait for vacation. I can't wait for this to happen. I can't wait for five o'clock and to get out of work, whatever it is. Um, but also the act of a waiter or a waitress. We think of someone who's waiting on you. Um, someone who, uh, when you go to the restaurant, sometimes you're waiting. <laughs> I ordered my food an hour ago. Where are you? You know, we we needed refills for five minutes. (laughs) Where are you? I don't know. Um, Or we had a long wait. But it's interesting. um, Let's see that there's this ancient British word for it that it was also singers of Christmas carols. I don't know where that comes from, but that was there. Uh, But it's interesting that the early senses, even before that, Middle English, uh, included to lie and wait for, to observe carefully, and to be watchful that a lot of times in modern uh, vernacular, I don't think we include that when we think of waiting. We think of just being, when is this going to be over? You know, I was at the uh, MVA the other day registering uh, the car, and 
man, I was waiting. I wa- you have to go in, you have to wait in line to wait in line when you go to the NBA down here. So I waited in line. I got up to the front, and they told me I needed something else notarized, and they closed in like an hour. I'm like, you didn't tell me this over the phone. So I went to uh, my bank down the street. Thankfully, it was like half a mile down the road. And they said, well, uh, there's a, why don't you sign up here, and we'll get to you when we can. And I'm like, well, how long is that going to be? And they're like, well, 15 minutes, 20 minutes. I'm like, I can't wait that long. <laughs> so I went across the street to another bank that I wasn't a member of and said, hey, do you have a notary? And they had no line, and the nice lady took me right away. And I got back and had to wait again. Uh, so, again, you know, you know how it goes when you go to the NBA. It's a couple hours. Um, I still think they should sell T-shirts when you walk out to say, I survived the DMV, but, <laughs> but that's how it goes. But I think that's when we think of waiting. We think of, I need to get somewhere. I need to do something. Come on, let's go. You know, maybe you're in traffic. Maybe that's just me because I'm from New York, but that's, that's really what waiting is sometimes. But other things you might wait for, marriage, something exciting, like we said, vacation or graduation or something promised. I don't even remember being a kid. Um, I, I do. I was a little bit closer for me, but uh, <laughs> Christmas, 109 days left till Christmas right now. That's what the count is. But we had an advent calendar for the last 24 days where every day you'd open it up and see how many days left until the gifts. Um, but man, to wait on the Lord, Psalm 27, 14 says, wait on the Lord, be of good courage, and he shall strengthen your heart. Wait, I say, on the Lord. That man, when God promises us something, when God says he's going to do something, we need to wait. And that idea of waiting needs to be, well, one, waiting and not doing anything to try and fulfill it, like we saw with Abraham and Ishmael, where he kind of jumped the gun there. But also waiting on, hey, let me do what I can with the time that I have. We think of uh, Nehemiah and the wall. He couldn't go do those things yet, but he began to prepare until such a time uh, that it was ready. Or even David, he couldn't build the temple, but he began to prepare and do the things that that he could uh, in that time. But again, we're going to pick it up here in Acts with Stephen before the high priest and his accusers. Um, we're picking it up partway through his message. I didn't want to just kind of gloss through the message. There's a lot of history here, and I thought, it, you know, I kind of felt that it would be good to kind of dig into it. Um, but he's expounding the gospel through the work of God through key points in the Old Testament. These things that these scholars, this high priest, these religious guys probably know inside and out. Like we talked about listening last week, where probably they heard it a million times before, but maybe they haven't really heard it. Maybe they haven't really understood it. And uh, I pray, Lord, we pray that today you'd help us to wait on you. You'd help us to hear and understand your word and that, God, you would uh, just make things clear to us about uh, anything that we're praying about and uh, help us just to be patient. Uh, Lord, it's, uh, sometimes you make us wait through hard times just to learn how to be patient. And Lord, it's always scary to pray that. Lord, help me be patient because we know that means we got to wait. So we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. So let's pick it up in verse 17 of Acts chapter 7. Uh, But when the time of the promise drew near, which God had sworn to Abraham, the people grew and multiplied in Egypt, excuse me, till another king arose who did not know Joseph. This man dealt treacherously with our people and oppressed our forefathers, making them expose their babies so they might not live. And at this time Moses was born and was well-pleasing to God, and he was brought up in his father's house for three months. But when he was set out, Pharaoh's daughter took him away and brought him up as her own son. And Moses was learned in all the wisdom of the Egyptians and was mighty in words and deeds. Now when he was 40 years old, it came into his heart to visit his brethren, the children of Israel. And seeing one of them suffer wrong, he defended and avenged him who was oppressed and struck down the Egyptian. For he supposed that his brethren would have understood that God would deliver them by his hand, but they did not understand. 
And the next day he appeared to two of them as they were fighting and tried to reconcile them, saying, Men, you are brethren. Why do you wrong one another? But he who did his neighbor wrong pushed him away, saying, Who made you a ruler and judge over us? Do you want to kill me as you did the Egyptian yesterday? Then at this saying Moses fled and became a dweller in the land of Midian, where he had two sons. And we're going to stop there for right now. Again, this is Stephen. This is a deacon. This isn't Apostle Peter. This isn't the Apostle Paul. Paul isn't even Paul yet. He's still Saul, as we're going to see in a couple chapters. But Stephen knew the Bible. Stephen was full of the Holy Spirit, as we saw. And Stephen was just as capable of giving a message by the Holy Spirit as any of the other guys, because it was God who was giving it. And we need to be ready for that. We need to be ready. But it's interesting that he starts off in verse 17, and he says, But when the time of the promise drew near... Well, how long was that? You know, we have a couple of verses we're talking about Abraham, and now a couple of verses we're talking about Moses. And he says, when the time of the promise drew near, you know, how long was that? You know, this is Moses now. This isn't Abraham. Uh, well, in 2091 BC, Abraham was sent out. In 2085 BC, Abraham was promised many descendants. Uh, in 2081 BC, God's covenant. 2080, Ishmael. 2067, the covenant of circumcision, and Isaac is promised. 2066, Isaac is born. Uh, these notes will be online later if you want to get the, all these dates down. Uh, the death of Joseph was in 1806. And in 1486, Moses flees to Midian. That's 581 years from the circumcision, 595 years from the covenant. Think about that. The time of the promise. God promises to Abraham. Abraham's like, sweet, when's this nation coming? 600 years later. 600 years later. Many people, many people come and go. 1446, Israelites groan, that's another 40 years. The burning bush, Moses sent to Israel, plagues, Exodus, Sinai, Ten Commandments, the wilderness journey. And then 1406, God commissions Joshua. And it's not till 1399, 692 years after that initial covenant with Abraham, that the land is allotted to the tribes that we talked about, where the tribes are given land and the Levites aren't given the land, they're given the priesthood. That's a long time. That's a long time. And I have a link in the notes if you're looking for where I got that timeline. But that speaks, I think, that big promises sometimes take big time. Big promises take big time. I mean, think about the Lord's promise to even come back to us. He said, I'm coming back to you. I'm coming back to you. But it's been 2,000 years. And as Peter says, while well, scoffers will come in the last day saying, where is the day of his appearing? He said he was coming back. He hasn't coming back yet. Well, it's because Jesus is doing something big for us. That's a big promise. He said, I'm going uh, to my father's house where there's many mansions and I'm preparing a place for you. He's been gone 2,000 years. That's a big promise that he's preparing a place for us. He wants to make sure everything's right. The, the molding will be all up. The electric's wired right or whatever he's doing up there for us. It's going to be beautiful. It's going to be gorgeous. And that's not to speak against spontaneity, so to speak. You know, spontaneity can be fun. You know, uh, you're dating or hanging out with your wife or with your friends. Sometimes it's fun to be spontaneous. What do you want to do? I don't know. Let's go do this. And it's fun. But man, how special is something when you plan it out? When you take your time and figure out how it's going to go. And maybe not be the OCD type when you're going on vacation and make a list. 9.05 a.m., 9.35 a.m., 10.05. If we're not here, we're behind schedule. Let's go. Let's go. Let's go. That's totally me. <laughs> um, but really... When you complain about it, I mean, think about when you were getting married and how much planning and effort you put into that. And, um, you know, maybe it was only a couple months time and you stuffed a lot of planning into that. Maybe it was a couple years. I don't know. But how important it was to plan those things and how special it was to put planning and effort into that. Or even if you're doing a business or something, you know, most of the time to be successful, you're going to want to put a plan into it. 
And there's an importance to planning, but it needs to have the right mindset. We can't just plan and expect things to go according to God's promise. We can't just say, I'm going to plan to do something, and God's will is going to be done through that plan. You know, Proverbs 16.9 says, A man's heart plans his way, but the Lord directs his step. That yes, God wants us to plan, and God wants us to prepare and be responsible, but in the same time, we need to be open to God directing our steps as we walk out those plans, as we do those plans, as we step forward. Because if we're, if we're not careful to listen to him every step of the way, we're going to be building this huge plan and we might be a little bit off course. Or Proverbs 6, 6 through 8 says, Go to the ant, you sluggard. Ouch. Consider her ways and be wise, which having no captain, overseer, or ruler, provides her supplies in the summer and gathers her food in the harvest. That Solomon says, hey, you know, plan out. Even the ant's plan. Even the ant's plan that winter is coming. You know, prepare for the future. Prepare for the future. You know, practical preparation prepares our way, but God provides the outcome. But yes, it's good to prepare. It's, it's good to plan ahead. It's good to take care of things. It's good to take care of your family. It's good to be aware of what's going on around you and work hard and do those things. But really, it's God who provides the outcome. You know, as Paul would say, one man plants and another man waters, but it's God who gives the increase. That even at the end of the day, all our best laid plans, God's the one who's got to make it fruitful or not. You know, James says in James 4, 13 through 15, Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow, we will go to such and such a city, spend a year there, buy and sell and make a profit. Whereas you do not know what will happen tomorrow. For what is your life? It is even a vapor that appears for a little time and then vanishes away. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we shall live and do this or that. He's saying, yeah, you, you guys are good at planning, but you're planning so much that you're forgetting that the Lord is in control, that you really have no control over your plans. Um, there's some saying about wars like that. You can plan all day, but then war happens and nothing goes according to plan. Uh, but really, you know, I think we had a 401k meeting at work lately, and we have a decent plan at work. And I think it's great that they provide that for us and the, the different things that they do. But my hope is not in the stock market. I'm glad, and I'll try and leverage it as possible here and there with a little bit of money that does go in there. But I'm not going to put my life vested interest in there. You know, I had some family members who had... Uh, who are believers and who even have a son who's involved in the stock market, who's a very smart investor, and they had a lot of stuff in there. But then the crash happened, I guess it was 2008 or 2009, and they lost a lot, and they're over retirement age. And uh, they've had to juggle th some things around, and God's provided for them, but man, it was, it was a hard time for them to go through to think about those things that had happened. And again, and not that their, their trust was in there, their trust has always been in the Lord, and I've seen that, but really that, man, we don't... We don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. We really don't, especially as you look at the world today and go, wow, I really don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. But what we can do, guys, what we can plan on is to wait on the Lord. That's one thing we can always plan to do and never have to worry about. I'm going to plan to wait on God. I'm going to plan to wait on God to meet this need. I'm going to plan to wait on God to do this. Yes, I'm going to reach out and I'm going to begin to research and do different things. Like when I was looking for the car, I began researching cars. I began looking up different loans, figuring out what my budget was, other things like this, what we get for this, what the different costs are, what we need. And yeah, I did that. But as I went out and did that, it was, well, I got to wait on the Lord to do this because I just got to do it. It's where we're at. And God's provided through that. God's provided through that. But it's interesting that it says that, that God swore to Abraham, that God promised to Abraham, not Abraham to God. Not Abraham to God. This promise, this covenant was God to Abraham. And that says that, you know, God doesn't expect us to vow to him. If we read Ecclesiastes and other areas in scripture, that it's better not to vow than to vow and not to pay. You know, because our word fails. Man's word will always fail. 
Anytime there's a deal, you know, a handshake deal or a contract, someone figure out a way out of that contract, to cut the deal, to cut the contract, no matter who it is. You know, we can have best friends that are even believers and eventually they're gonna fail us. Why? Because eventually we're gonna fail them. That's just who we are, we're, we're people. Not that it's okay, but it's in a sense, we can plan to be let down. We can plan to be let down, but not by God, not by God. If God has spoken something to us, if God has said something to us, he's gonna do it. It may not be in our timing, it may not be the way we like it, but in the end, it's the best plan for us. You know, it's up to God to fulfill his promises to us, and we can't force it. We can't force God's hand. Abraham tried that, we got Ishmael, and we saw the results of that last time. But we see here, uh, as we go on, it says uh, that another king arose in verse 18 who did not know Joseph. Did not know Joseph. And if you look at the timeline for that, that's 320 years after Joseph. 320 years. So Joseph was in Egypt. Joseph was Pharaoh's right-hand man. Uh, he saves Egypt from this famine by interpreting by God's power uh, Pharaoh's dream. Uh, his people are saved. The Egyptians are saved. They get through this time. They remain a prosperous nation. And the Pharaohs remember that. This guy was in their history books, apparently. And they knew who he was, and they respected him for who he was, and they respected the people for who he was. Even though they were not Egyptians living in the land, they go, yeah, because of these people, we were blessed. I mean, you know, the Egyptians had all their gods and everything. They weren't a, you know, a godly nation by any stretch of imagination. But they at least had some idea of who God's people were and what a blessing that even God would bring to their nation and their society. Um, but man, it says that this king came, this, uh, this king rose, and he dealt treacherously with these people. You know, bad kings do come. We can plan on that too, that bad rulers will come. We may have great rulers that we like and we look back to, but eventually a bad ruler will come. Even if you look through the Israelites in their history and the kings that come, you have a good king, a great king, horrible king, horrible king, horrible king, good king, horrible king, horrible king, all throughout their history. It's going to happen. Um, you know, they always do. Again, the other pharaohs knew and cared to some degree what God had done through Joseph, but this guy didn't care. This guy didn't care at all. He didn't, and we'll see the results of that. But, you know, political ties and favor aren't going to last. You know, uh, the, they had favor in the highest seat in Egypt, but it didn't last. Their favor had turned maybe even overnight. Um, and that's the same way for us. You know, we can't look to politics for our hope. We can't look to the next president or the next senator or the next bill or whatever for our hope. You know, not that we're not supposed to be salt and light and try and influence politics and be involved in our country in that matter, but that's not where our hope lies. That's not where my hope lies. <laughs> I'd be really upset if that's where my hope was. Um, you know, I'm just upset that I have to raise my kids in a society with all these things. Um, but sincerely, um, you know, don't be surprised one day when the politicians throw us to the lion's den because of the pressures that they're under. Even if they're quote-unquote God-fearing people, but if they don't have a relationship with God, man, we're going to go by the wayside uh, when that comes. And we see it now. Right or wrong, Christians are going to jail for their beliefs. They're going to jail. And it's like headline news. Christians are going to jail because they believe something and they aren't going to carry it out. I'm not saying necessarily that these people are doing it in the right way. I don't know. I'm not going to get into that at this moment. Um, but sincerely, they're going to jail for something they believe and they're living out their belief. And this is headline news. But not mark my words because I'm not going to be one of those guys. But if this is the way it is today, what could it be like a year from now? Especially given the exponential rate that things are rotting. What's it going to be like 10 years from now? Especially if we don't go out and vote, guys. Especially if we don't get involved. How much quicker, and especially if we don't go out and evangelize, how much quicker is it going to be done? You know, Christians are being beheaded by ISIS, uh, run out of their villages. And again, this is headline news now, but I think in a few years, 
maybe we're lucky if it makes the back page. So what did this Pharaoh do that was so bad? What did this guy do who forgot God, forgot God's people, forgot Joseph, and the blessing that these people brought to the nation of Egypt? Well, it says, number one, that he dealt treacherously with the people. If we read the Old Testament and we see the, the stories, he beat them, he forced them to do labor, that uh, when Moses, as we'll get into in a minute, comes to get the people out, he causes them to have to get the straw too, and just makes their life into slavery. They lost their rights, that these people lost their rights. They've been living in, e in Egypt longer than this guy was living in Egypt. It wasn't like it was just overnight and these people were there for a couple years. They were there for 320 years. And he turns on him. And then what? Well, he finds out that their, uh, their little boys are there and then there's supposed to be this guy coming to rescue them and he's afraid that they're going to rise up and take the throne. So what does he do? He exposes their babies to death, that all the boys are going to be exposed to death, that they're going to be destroyed because he doesn't want to challenge. What's the best way to get rid of an army that's growing up among you? Get rid of all the people who would become that army. Um, and these people's rights were stripped. They were forced to give up their livelihood to be slaves. And on top of that, their children would be killed. Again, it's not the same today. People are losing their livelihoods because of that they're the people of God, because of what they believe in. Um, and not necessarily that we're forced to uh, commit abortion. I mean, those things are happening in America. But really that, man, the government is taking away the rights of families, the rights of people to make decisions about vaccinations one way or the other, the rights of families to teach their kids about sex education, the rights of the families to, to allow their daughters or their sons to have operations to change their sexual quote-unquote identity, to mutilate their bodies, or a girl can go out and get abortion pills or have an abortion and not have to tell their parents. Are you kidding me? What does that say? That the, the state is becoming the parent. The state is becoming between one of the most intimate and important relationships in someone's life. Is that not losing your rights over your own children? to some politician somewhere, to some interest group somewhere. That's the crazy thing. You know, the, the Lord is coming back soon. Just like the Israelites groan, there's a time coming when we're going to groan. And if we're not groaning already, man, I think we're missing the boat. Uh, but you know what? Let's be groaning for a rescue, not out of these days, but for these days, that God would do a revival, that God would bring a revival, that people would begin to come to know him, and that through these hard times, through this groaning, there would be an awakening but Moses, he was born, it says he lived in his father's house for three years. And it says uh, in verse 21, but when he was set out, I love that. You know, he's put in this little basket that his mom makes. We've been watching and reading the stories with Mia a lot lately. Um, but he's put in this basket. It says that when he set out, that God, in a sense, this was God's plan for Moses. That even at three months old, God's plan was put into motion for this little boy, this little baby Moses. Man, I can't think of having to give up my son and put him in a basket for fear that the government is going to come and, and murder him. But it says that uh, he floated in the water, he's put in a basket. If you remember the story, his older sister Miriam follows along. Pharaoh's daughter finds him and uh, takes him to be home. And Miriam goes to find a nurse, and it's uh, his mom. So his mom gets the blessing of nursing him until the weaning age. But Moses is now one of the Jewish babies who Pharaoh wants to kill. The very people that Pharaoh wants to kill is now living in Pharaoh's house, living off of Pharaoh's dime getting Pharaoh's education, being served by Pharaoh's servants. Pharaoh's own daughter is raising him as her son. And man, that's fantastic. God goes, all right, Pharaoh, you think you can defeat me? That's not going to happen. I'm going to use you to raise up the man who's going to confront you one of these days. And isn't that like the Lord to, to be just so, you got plans, Pharaoh, but I'm better than you. Um, but he raises him up. He raises him up. In verse 23, it says that when he was 40, 
So Moses goes from being three months old to being raised up in Pharaoh's house to he's 40 years old. He's going through what we would consider maybe a midlife crisis. And he's wondering about his identity. You know, he's maybe got the, the Egyptian makeup on. He's got the Egyptian clothes, the sandals. He's got the education. Uh, you know, he speaks Egyptian. But he's going, man, you know, I don't know if this is really me. I don't know if this is really all I cracked up to be. You know, I loved it growing up. It was fantastic. But I really, maybe I feel kind of empty. I mean, I don't know. The Bible doesn't really say that. But I'm just thinking, let's maybe put this in perspective a little bit. Uh, maybe he didn't care. Maybe, you know, he always knew he was Jewish. Maybe he didn't care. He's like, whatever, that's their problem. I, you know, I'm up here in my Pharaoh's house and everything's going fine. But when he was 40, he said that God put it on his heart, that it was on Pharaoh's heart to go down and visit his people. Um, you know, how long did it take us for God to put something on our heart, for our heart to be in a place where God could put something on it to go down there? You know, God was going to put stuff on your heart and on my heart, and we're going to go, man, maybe I should go do that. Maybe I should go visit my family. Maybe I could, should go see how my friends are doing. Maybe I should go do that. And maybe it comes when we're 40. Maybe we're just so living our lives for all this time that it, uh, it didn't come. And, and that's okay. It's, if it came, good. I'm glad it came. Let's just get to a point where it does come. But he goes down and goes on this little excursion to see the regular folk. You know, maybe he comes down and he sneaks away from the chariot and the secret service. And he goes down to visit the, the Israelites. And what does he find when he gets down there? He sees a Jewish guy being beaten, being abused, and being oppressed. You know, it's on his heart. I'm, you know, I'm going to go see my people. I'm going to go learn more. I'm going to go see how they're doing. Maybe, you know, maybe the things that Pharaoh's news television station is telling me isn't really the case. Maybe the Jews aren't really happy to be our slaves. I don't know. Maybe I'm going to go down and find out and see for myself. How important it is that we do that, that we go down and see for ourselves. We see the Lord do that when he comes to judge Sodom and Gomorrah and other places. He goes, yeah, I've heard the accusations. Let me go down and see for myself. But he goes down there. He sees this guy getting beaten. And what happens? Zeal rises up in Moses. There's this injustice. This guy's getting beaten. He takes the guard. He beats him. He kills him. He buries him in the sand. He doesn't think anyone sees him. You know, he's got this, in a sense, this righteous anger because for 40 years it's been pent up. It's been building up. And he comes down to finally meet his people and he sees, whoa, I've been a part of the system that's been oppressing them my entire life. This other guy is beating my people. This man, this heart that God has put in Moses for his people. He's got, in a sense, the right heart. That God put this on his heart because God made Moses' heart to be a leader for these people. And I think God's going to do that in your life and in my life as well, where he's going to put things on you on your heart. He's made you and designed you a certain way to reach certain people and do certain things and be leaders. But man, if our hearts aren't ready, if our hearts aren't really prepared before the Lord when we encounter these things, we might act out in the wrong way. You know, there's times when I want to rise up and I read the news and I want to mount up and head out and go down to Washington and... Uh, <laughs> But then I'd be in jail. Or there's times when I see people totally lost and totally astray who are believers and they just want to wring them around the neck. But, man, I need to pray for them. I need to come to them in a, in a spirit of grace and humility and realize that, man, if it wasn't for the grace of God, I'd be in the same exact boat as them. And I think we can all relate. You know, we think of young people today who are growing up and coming out of high school and in high school and college and afterwards who see these things that go on in the world and they want to march and they want to demonstrate and they want to fight back. But... They're zealous, but they, they haven't been tempered by knowledge yet, like the Bible talks about, that they don't really know the right way to carry these things out. And so um, things aren't really uh, taken care of and nothing really changes per se. We're new believers. You get saved and you want to tell everybody. And, you know, in a sense, it's like this amazing zeal, but maybe you didn't share it in the right way. Maybe you're like me and you're like, come on, get saved. Uh, you know, I don't know. 
But what happens again? It's not exactly what Moses expects, verse 25. It says, For he supposed that his brethren would have understood that God would deliver him by his hand, but they didn't understand. It says that they didn't understand him. You know, like Jesus said in Luke 4, 24, Assuredly, I say to you, no prophet has accepted his own country. You know, they still saw him as an Egyptian. They said, Who are you? Who are you? You just killed somebody and you're going to rescue me? You know, it still would take another 40 years. Like this guy says, you know, you're the one who killed him. Why are you going to rescue me? Who are you to speak into our lives? You know, the people didn't recognize him. You know, there still had to be 40 years of work left to be done in Moses' life. Joseph was long gone at this point again. The Pharaoh had long forgotten who Joseph was, but God's covenant still remained. Just because it seemed like everything was going wrong, seemed like no one understood this thing that was on Moses' heart, he didn't know how to carry it out, but God's promise still remained. It didn't look like they'd ever have a nation. They were enslaved to Pharaoh, the superpower of the time. But that's the way it is sometimes, guys, that nothing looks right except we know what God has said. We know what God has promised. And if God has promised this, no matter what it looks like, it will come to pass. Don't lose hope until God's word in your life has been fulfilled. Uh, I'm not sure the exact quote, but it, this is a paraphrase of John Corson. It says, if it's not beautiful yet, it's because God isn't done. Basically, if your life looks like a mess right now, and the situation that you know maybe God spoke to you about or you've been praying about still looks messy, it's because God's not done yet. It'll be beautiful when God's done with it. And isn't that the truth? But it says in verse 27 that the one who was in the wrong is the one who pushed him away. The one who was in the wrong said, who are you? Who are you to judge me? Don't judge me, bro. Don't tase me, bro. I'm the one. You know, you just murdered some guy. Isn't that interesting that, man, when, when we go to try and bring justice or try and bring peace, it's the people who are totally opposed to that peace that are going to push us away and say things against us and try to accuse us and condemn us. Uh, but Proverbs 26, 17 says, He who passes by and meddles in a quarrel, not his own, is like one who takes a dog by the ears. That If you ever see a couple people fighting, be careful when you, if you want to go break it up because most of the time, if they're both fighting over a wrong reason, they're both going to turn on you. If it's one person oppressing someone else and you're going to stop it, you know, you're going to fight the oppressor, not the other guy. But really, we, we need to be concerned. Is, is this what God would have me do? Is this the fight that God would have me do? Um, a friend always says uh, about like raising his kids or dealing with issues, pick the hill you're going to die on. Is this the hill you really want to die on? Is this argument the one that you really want to take up? Are you really going to put all your chips and all your relationship on this one hill, or can you let it pass? But again, rules without relationship bring rebellion. And that's a very good parenting statement I've heard that you put a lot of rules down on people, you put all the rules at work, you put a lot of rules at youth group or whatever it is or in your kids' lives, but you don't have a close relationship with them, what are they going to do naturally? Just like you and I, we're going to rebel. The government doesn't hear me? I don't want to obey that. I mean, we're going to obey it because we're Christians and that's what we're supposed to do. But really, we're going to rebel. We're going to turn against them. And it says that, that at this saying, Moses fled. That when this guy condemned him, even though this guy was doing wrong, because he knew what Moses had done, and Moses knew that it was messed up and Pharaoh was going to get him for that, um, it cut him deep as well. I think it scared him just for his safety and his life, but I think it also cut him deep as we're going to see here that, man, God put this on my heart to come down and see these people. I see the oppression. I take care of this one guy who's oppressing him, and yeah, I, I went a little overboard and I killed this guy, and now I'm still trying to reach these people. I know what God has put on my heart, but nothing's working out. 
nothing's working out. And, and I think nothing's deeper than the, than the, the bruise or the, the pain that comes when you feel like you're following what the Lord has told you to do. The Lord has clearly said something you do. You step out to do it. And man, the people you love cut you deep and say, nope, nope, nope. And maybe they're right. And maybe it's not time. And maybe you didn't hear from the Lord. But when you know it's the Lord and you know, maybe there's just, it cuts deep. It cuts deep. You know, words stay with us, good and bad, but condemnation really tends to stick. You know, Ephesians 6.16 tells us, Above all, taking the shield of faith, with which you will be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked one. And man, we need to, when God's spoken to us something, or God's word says something, we need to have faith in that, to quench those fiery darts of condemnation that the enemy's going to bring with us. Yep, I, I, yep, God told me to do this. God told me to do this. I'm having faith in God's word. Or God's word says this. I'm not going to let it get into me deep. Because when those condemnation comes, they stick and they burn and they go deep. But God's not going to condemn us when we do right and we do it wrongly. Not that we should do it wrongly, but God's going to say, okay, come here. <laughs> Let's clean you up. Let's go about this the right way. Let's go back and make amends and do it right way. And the enemy is going to say, no, look at what you did. I can't believe you did it that way. How, can you, how dare you? You can never share with anyone ever again. That's not the case. You know, Romans 8, 1 and 2, Therefore is now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For the law of the Spirit of life, uh, law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. You know, yeah, Moses did the wrong way. But man, when we seek the Lord, there's no condemnation. That can be wiped away. God can use us still. He can still use us. But Moses had a lot left to learn. And so he moves out, he flees, and he goes to the land of Midian. Well, where's Midian? It's on the other side of Sinai. We have Egypt. We have, uh, you know, the Red Sea with the little peace sign hand looking thing. Sinai here. And he's dwelling over on Midian over on this side, the Gulf of Arabia, I believe it is. But this man who was in Pharaoh's house, very educated, was very wealthy, a very powerful uh, person in the sense. I'm sure he could go into any shop and they'd give him stuff for free. But he was reduced to being a fugitive. He was living on the backside of the wilderness taking care of sheep for his father-in-law. This career is way below him. I don't know if you guys have ever been unemployed and you're trying to get a job and they say, you're overqualified. I want to work. <laughs> Shouldn't that be good that I know how to work and I want to do this job for you and I, I want to make a living? Shouldn't that be good? Would you rather someone underqualified? I mean, what's the flip side of that? Um, I, I, I get it, but in a sense, I feel like Moses was the ultimate overqualified guy to be tending sheep. But what a fall. Socially, economically, politically, this guy, and now he's in the water. Some of you have been in that place or known someone who's been in that place, but God was using it. Again, this was all part of God's plan. I'm going to bring you across the wilderness, and I'm eventually going to bring you across with the Israelites, but i got to bring you through it first. got to take all this Egypt out of you, Moses, and make you a shepherd. Um, but these are regular people, guys, and this is the way God works. Moses was like you and I. It's like you and I. And I think we really disconnect ourselves from the reality of Scripture sometimes. I think we look at it and we come to it in a lens of this is Moses and this is our forefather and this is Scripture. And we should in a sense because God has obviously put Moses in the Bible. In a sense, you and I, I'm thankful my story is not in the Bible. That people for thousands of years aren't going to be making me an example. I can barely deal with 70 years. But these guys are people just like you and me. These people go through situations. God brings them through hard times. They don't know what's going on. They think it's all over. They've got stuff that scars them for life in a sense. And God uses it. And God uses it. And these things are true. These things actually happened. 
It's not a story. It's not a movie. It's reality. And our lives are not our own. You know, Moses was just living life. He moved to Midian. He settled down. He got married. His father-in-law is shepherding. It says he has two sons. Uh, he's doing his lowly profession. He's, you know, hey, I guess this is my life. I was raised up in Pharaoh's house. Son was on my heart, and I messed up big time, and no one listened to me, and I guess they're right. You know, who am I? Who am I? And Moses had that identity crisis, and God had to bring him through the wilderness to show him who he was, who he was, when he met, as we'll see in a minute, the great I am. You know, God wasn't done. God wasn't done. And if we're in that place, if we're dwelling in Midian right now, or we're not really sure where we are, or what we're doing, or if this is the last, last thing that God's got for us, and it's lowly, but we've kind of come to grips with it, know that God isn't done with you. Know that God is not done with you. Verse 30. And when 40 years had passed, again, <laughs> 40 years, a quick little sentence, and it's 40 years, um, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in the flame of fire in the bush in the wilderness of Mount Sinai. When Moses saw it, he marveled at the sight, and as he drew near to observe, the voice of the Lord came to him, saying, I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses trembled and dared not look. Then the Lord said to him, Take your sandals off your feet, for the place where you stand is holy ground. I have surely seen the oppression of my people who are in Egypt. I have heard their groaning, and I have come down to deliver them. And now, uh, now come, I will send you to Egypt. This Moses, whom they rejected, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge? Is the one God sent to be a ruler and a deliverer by the hand of the angel who appeared to him in the bush. He brought them out, and after had shown uh, wonders and signs in the land of Egypt, in the Red Sea, and in the wilderness for 40 years. You know, it says again, when 40 years had passed, 40 long, hard, lonely, dry, and dusty years in the wilderness for Moses. And replaced with water, grapes, fruit, Egypt. 40 years there to 40 years on the backside of the wilderness. You know, Paul says, I've learned to be abased. And I've learned to abound. I've learned to be lowly. And I've learned to be not so lowly in physical stature. And his identity had become nothing in the world. Again, he was somebody in Pharaoh's house. And now he's nobody. Who knows him at this point? A few people. The sheep. The rocks. But God takes him to a mount where Isaac... Uh, God takes him to a mount, Mount Sinai. There's questions about where it is. But I think about um, the mount where Isaac was offered up. God brought Abraham to a mount to offer Isaac. God brings Moses to this mountain. He also brings him to the mountain to get the Ten Commandments. But God also brought Jesus to a mountain when he was sacrificed. And not to make too big a point out of it, but really there's something special about being on a mountain. There's something special about being out in the wilderness, nature, hiking. When you think about Jesus, he was tempted in the wilderness that... When we go away from everything we know, we go away from everything we're comfortable, and we get out to where there's nothing that can really sustain us, and we're just in the presence of God, and we're kind of out there wandering. Um, man, it's awesome. Um, you know, I gotta, I gotta find time and get back out hiking again because, uh, just you know, you're in the city for so long, you begin to yearn for nature. But he sees this burning bush. You know, Moses had seen plenty of wonders. I guarantee you, technological. Uh, uh, power of their time, um, many magicians and other things. And I'm sure he had seen a lot of things in the wilderness, stuff that he had never known before or he become familiar with. But he sees this burning bush one day and it says basically that it was unlike anything he had ever encountered. He marveled. He goes, what is that? I've never seen that before. It's on fire. It's not burning up. Hmm. This is interesting. I mean, you're out in the wilderness. You know, sometimes, you know, you see someone who's kind of been out for a while and they haven't, they haven't been around other people. Maybe they've been sick and 
you've been out of work and you go back to work and you don't really know how to socialize at first. You're kind of like just awkward. And he's kind of awkward out in the middle of the wilderness. And hold on, what's that? And let me go take a look at this burning bush. That's the same way. When God shows up in your life and my life, it can be quite inexplicable. What's that? What is that? God's doing something. Ah, what? Let me go get a closer look. And Moses goes closer, and we see that it's an angel of the Lord. It's a Christophany. You know, we think of flame of fire, the Holy Spirit, the bush didn't burn up. There's flames of fires that we saw on the apostles. But it says, as he drew near to observe, God spoke to him. You know, uh, Moses is walking through the wilderness, and he doesn't keep walking. He just go, oh, that's neat. <laughs> Takes a picture, Instagram, keeps walking. No, he, he kind of walks over, makes sure the sheep are okay. He begins to draw near. And as he draws near, God says, Moses, Moses. You know, we talked about drawing near to God uh, last week or two weeks ago. And he'll draw near to us. God shows up and, oh, let me go look. Let me go investigate this thing in my life. You know, he gets our intention. And as soon as we step out to investigate, that's when God speaks. God, speak to me, Lord. Speak to me. Show me something. I'm going through this hard time. And we begin to see a little flaming bush somewhere spiritually in our lives. And if we never go investigate, we're never going to hear what God has to say. You know, maybe, you know, you're going through a hard time and you just sense, I need to go read the Bible or I need to go worship or I need to go pray. And we don't do it. We're not going to hear what God has to say. We're going to keep praying the same prayer and God's going to keep putting little burning bushes in our lives and we're going to miss out. You know, how many times have I done that? And God puts another burning bush up later in my night and I go spend time like, ah, oh, I should have just done this before. You know, whether it's a church, Bible study, worship, prayer, fellowship with other believers, God's going to begin to do peculiar little things in your life. And if we draw near to those, um, I mean, maybe some of the people we meet be peculiar. Don't draw too near. But, <laughs> but sincerely, listen and uh, listen for what God might say to you. And when God spoke to Moses, Moses trembled and he dared not look. He didn't go, hey, I'm Moses. Who are you? He went, oh, wow, you're God. You know, as the angels cover themselves. I think that's interesting that Moses recognized this authority of God. Maybe he wouldn't have recognized it 40 years earlier when he came out of Egypt. He'd be like, what's this? I'm from Egypt, but now he realized, oh man, this is legit. This is God. You know, Proverbs 9.10 says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. You know, this man was broken, isolated, and inglorious, but God met him where he was, the wilderness. Moses didn't have to go back to Egypt to hear what God had to say. He didn't have to do anything crazy. He was doing his daily business, and God showed up in his life. You know, Moses had lost his identity, and he had been looking for it. But he knew where it came from. He knew, hey, I'm Jewish, and that's how God showed up to him. He says, I'm the God of your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That I'm the God that you've been wanting to. I'm the God that's put this on your heart to know who you really are. And Moses' faith, like that bush, was ready to be kindled. That Moses was a dry bush now, out in the middle of the wilderness. All the sustenance, all the leaves, all the good things and decorations in his life had been removed, and he was ready to be lit on fire for God. And God assured him that this is what he was looking for. I think it's interesting that it says then, you know, that then this happens. You know, that this had to be, um, he had to draw near to hear what God would say to him next. But God says when he draws near, that the place where you stand is holy ground. That this ground was the same ground that Moses probably walked by every day for 40 years. Um, but because God met him there, all of a sudden this place became holy. All of a sudden this place became holy. Take off your sandals, Moses. This isn't normal. You're on holy ground now. And what place is holy in our lives? What place is holy to you and to me in a physical sense, in a mental sense, in an emotional or spiritual sense? You know, I think of the bedroom at my mom's place in New York where I got saved where I didn't think the place was holy. 
and God showed up one night and I gave my life to him. That place became holy to me. There's still something special about that room. Not that I go in there and I light candles and go crazy, but there's just a special holy place in my heart that, yeah, that's where I met God. Uh, or church. You come to church and you go in the sanctuary and no kids running in the sanctuary. It's holy. <laughs> Not in that sense, but like, man, this is where God speaks to me. This is where I meet with God every week. Not that there's anything special about the chairs or anything else, but this is where I come to meet with God and it's holy to me. Or uh, like I said, I used to do a lot of hiking. I'd go out hiking and there's nothing special about the woods. But I'd go out there and it was away from people and I had special spots that I would go and just sit and read or pray or just walk and God would speak to me. And that's a lot of how God reached me before I came to know him. Or even your personal space, like the Bible talks about a prayer closet, a place where you go in the morning, at evening, at lunch, wherever, where you just, this is a place where I sit down and I hear from God. And we need to keep those places holy. They're, they're important because they're not holy in themselves, but they're holy because God meets us there. Because God meets us there. Take your sandals off your feet. You know, one more active humility for Moses. One more thing to totally take away in God's presence. Not that we need to take off our shoes here. You can if you want. You know, I probably lost a security deposit already. But enjoy, relax. Take those presents off. You know, sometimes our feet are pretty gross. And we go, God, really? You want to see that? All right. And we feel funny. But man, when we take that little act of humility before the Lord, we know our hearts are open. Whether it's we stand and raise our hands or we kneel or we just take that time out of our day, that take our sandals off for say before the Lord and slow down and listen to what he might say. But what remains in our life? And are we willing to take off our sandals? Are we willing to expose our weary, dirty feet and come as we are? Are we willing to expose these parts of our heart that maybe aren't holy to God when he appears there? You know, it's interesting that when, when he gets there, God lets Moses know that he sees the oppression of his people in Egypt. It wasn't Moses just being emotional 40 years ago. He reacted quite emotionally, but the thing that was on his heart wasn't just you know, the Egyptian pizza he had the night before. It was God on his heart. And God saw it. Exodus 2, 23 through 25. Now it happened in the process of time that the king of Egypt died. Then the children of Israel groaned because of the bondage and they cried out and their cry came up to God because of the bondage. So God heard their groaning and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac and with Jacob. And God looked upon the children of Israel and God acknowledged them. Again, process of time. I love how the Bible says process of time, a couple hundred years. But God remembered his covenant. And not that God forgets and goes, oh, I forgot a covenant. Oh, man, I left work and I left my covenant there. I got to go back and get it. No, I think it's just to help us relate that as time passes, God's going to remember what he said. God's going to do what he said. And it says that God came down to deliver them. Then when he's in this bush, God says, hey, the reason why I'm in this bush is to deliver my people. That I've come down to deliver them. And that it wasn't primarily Moses' responsibility. I think that's what Moses thought in the beginning of the 40 years earlier. It's on my heart. It's my responsibility. I have to do something. I'm going to kill this guy. I'm going to break these guys up. I'm going to bring peace physically to these people. And that wasn't God's plan. God was the one who was going to bring the restoration. God was the one who was going to bring them out. Moses was just going to be the tool of that. You know, there's shepherd, there's sheep, there's pastors, there's leaders, but we're all God's sheep and God's the real shepherd. No one is your shepherd. No one can tell you uh, what to do in your life. They might give you good advice, but really the Holy Spirit is the one who's going to show you the way to go. Um, and God's the one who will, who will do and lead the work. But he says, I will send you to Egypt. I will send you to Egypt. You know, Moses was how God was going to do it. And that reality of sand and that reality of Egypt and that reality of the pharaohs that, yeah, maybe no other shepherd could have gotten in that door, but God brought Moses up, brought Moses out so that Moses would have a place to go back to. Oh, we know who this guy is. Let him in. Let's hear what he has to say. Um, you know, maybe there was some connection there. I don't know. Uh, but God will send you. 
God will send you. He may take you out of a place for a while and bring you back. We see Paul was brought out for many years, had to reconcile a lot of things in the wilderness. Then he's brought back to minister to the people. Um, you know, God's got to do that a lot of times in our lives. You know, sometimes we need to we need to cut ties with a lot of our friends when we first get saved because it's just we need to. Otherwise, they're going to drag us back in. And then at some point, God's going to bring about an opportunity to go back and minister to them, whether it's on Facebook or email or you bump into them somewhere, or reunion or whatever it is. God may bring you back there. Um, but it has to be when you're ready, when he can use you. And it's great here. I love this, that uh, um, God addresses the words that have deeply hurt and haunted Moses. You know, Stephen says in verse 35, This Moses whom they rejected, saying, Who made you in a ruler judge? is the one God sent to be a ruler and deliverer by the hand of this condemnation that this guy brought against him. Mo the guy says, who are you? Who sent you? Well, Moses didn't really know who sent him yet. Moses thought it was his own heart sending him, perhaps. But it wasn't until 40 years in the wilderness when the great I Am shows up and says, and he goes, who do I say sent me now? <laughs> God says, tell them that I am that I am sent you. Tell them that God sent you. And this was the insurance that Moses needed. That all these years in the wilderness, that, that, that word that deeply hurt him, that deeply touched him, deeply scarred him, God speaks to him and says, I'm the one. And he heals it, and that's what Moses needed, a direct word from God. The Logos versus the Raymond. We know what the Bible says, Logos, but what does it speak to me in my life specifically about what I'm going through, the Rhema? You know, Moses would do wonders by God's hand. Ten plagues. You know, we've all probably heard about all the plagues in Egypt and the things that went done. But his identity in God would remain forever. If he hadn't stopped to look at that bush, would any of us know who Moses is today? If he hadn't drawn close, it would just whatever. He would just be another guy who died in the wilderness to never be remembered again from dust to dust. But he listened to what God said and God used him. And now Moses is more famous than Pharaoh. More people know about Moses than they do about these Pharaohs. I mean, you might know a little bit about them, but um, you know, we know who he is. And the same thing is for us, you know. Um, God had to bring him through this wilderness to prepare him to lead more stubborn, more prideful, more people without an identity out and through. Just like Moses was prideful, just like Moses was stubborn, just like Moses had to be brought out. God had to bring Moses through that. And the same thing is with us, that before we can lead anyone else to a place with God, a relationship with God, we have to be in that relationship ourselves. I remember trying to share the gospel with people when I hadn't obeyed the gospel yet myself. And they go, you're doing the same thing I am. <laughs> same basic thing. God had to bring us out and bring us through. And we're going to close here in a minute. You know, how far have we gone? And how far will God take us? And, and are we willing to loose those sandals in our life that God might bring us further than our sandals are going to take us? John 1.27, It is he who coming after me, John the Baptist says, is preferred before me, whose sandal strap I'm not worthy to loose. That this guy, the cousin of Jesus, because said, I'm the cousin of Jesus. <laughs> I leaped in my womb. I've had the Holy Spirit in my womb. He goes, man, I live in wilderness. I have a beard. I eat locusts and honey out of it. It's great. It's like my refrigerator. But he realizes that Jesus is better than him. He realized that, man, I'm not even worthy to, to touch Jesus' feet. I'm not worthy to undo his sandal. Uh, but man, he's greater. In John 3, 3-5, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, and they had come from God and was going to God. This is not three. I copied the wrong thing. Um, rose from supper and laid aside his garments, took a towel and girded himself. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel which he was girded. That God was the one who was going to go down and, and clean the disciples' feet, but they had to take off their sandals. That that was a holy moment. Jesus puts on his robe and washes their feet. Love the same, uh, similar pictures here. That God is washing Moses' feet in this holy land. I'm dealing with these issues in your heart. I'm dealing with this pain and struggle you've had for all these years. 
You know, if God has shown you something, if God has laid it on your heart, God's the one who's laid it there. You don't need to be concerned about that. If God's laid something on your heart, an issue, a people, a, a mission, consider it. You know, God has allowed you to experience something devastating. I guarantee there's been a devastating experience in each of our lives that God's allowed us to go through. Not that we would parade it, but maybe there's one person that God wants you to reach with it at some point. Maybe it's not now. Maybe there needs to be healing. Maybe there needs to be 20 years of reconciling before you can deal with it. I know people have gone through hard things and years later, they've been able to talk about it and share with it and share with people. You know, God has appeared to each one of you. I know he has because you're here. You're here. This is God's word. If you have the Bible, God's appeared to you. If you, even if you don't, I know that God's appeared to you. But what does God want to do through all that? He wants to make you holy. The whole purpose of anything we go through is that God would make us holy, would make us into his image, that we would be conformed to his image in Jesus, that the things that, that we rely on would be stripped away if necessary, that we might learn to rely on God. You know, sometimes we can just let go of, it, let go of our dependence on things and learn to depend on God. And other times God has to pull those things away because we're unwilling to let go of them. But will we come near? When we see that burning bush, will we come near? Will we let God begin to direct us and begin to minister to those things that are deep in us? And will we take up our identity in Him? People are so concerned about their identity these days that it's wrapped up in what you wear, what you do. You know, how often it is that when guys meet each other, we say, hey, what's your name? What do you do for a living? <laughs> because that's for some strange reason, at least with me, and, and I've noticed it's like that's how I identify people. It helps me understand who they are and what they like because in a sense, that's, it makes up a lot of my identity. But Colossians 3.3 3, 3 says, For you died, and your life is hidden with Christ and God. That as believers, we should be dead. We should have had a, a, a back point on the, the side of the wilderness. Man, we're dead, and God showed up in our lives. And, and we can go back and do the things that, that we are afraid to do. We can go back and do the things that we never thought we'd be able to do. We can go back and do the things that God was laying on our heart to do. We didn't, we didn't really understand him before him, that our lives are dead, that, guys, if we die right now, it's okay. We're going to heaven. That, Man, if people make fun of us, that's a tough one for me. Man, it's okay because technically I'm dead. I died in 2003 when I gave my life to Jesus, and that's the way that we find true life in Christ. Amen? Uh, Father, we love you, and my God, you love us so very much that you would take us out of our Egypts, take us out of sin, and free us, and bring us through hard times that we might learn to trust you and relate to you and understand you and God that through that you would use us to minister to others like Second Corinthians says that God would you bring us through these hard times would you make us a rescue for the people these days who are groaning out for truth who are groaning out for identity who are doing things that are so wicked in an attempt to be themselves and God I pray that you would show up Lord that we would know that we know that Lord you the great I am have sent us and, Lord, the things you put on each of our hearts, uh, God, I pray that you would mold them and shape them and show us what's of us and what's of you. And that, Holy Spirit, you would continue to move in us and fill us and reach your people, bring people out to know you, bring people in this area to know you, God. And, uh, Lord, help us to just love you and love each other. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. So God bless you guys and uh, enjoy. There's donuts and all sorts of goodies over there.